This is the last show of the first series, and it's all about the Grand Illusion. This theme was uh, another one taken from the Pushpin Graphics magazine, and since I had no idea what the Grand Illusion was, I decided to make it about magic and illusion and artificial snow. You're probably thinking this guy isn't very well read. You're thinking the phrase Grand Illusion of course comes from British economist Norman Angel's book, which argued that war didn't make sense between people who shared economic interests, and anyone who says anything different is creating a great illusion, a lie. That's what you're thinking. But I just kept wondering about the theme and what I would do with it, until our engineer Orson Welles recommended a movie to me. Grand Illusion of Renoir. That's right. I knew Orson was into magic, so I ordered the movie up on Netflix. Right away I was confused. It was in French with subtitles and filmed in black and white. There was no magic in it at all. It was about prisoners of war. I liked the movie, but I'd rather do a magic show. Oh, a magic show! A magic show? Where did I put that rat's ass I could give? In the toy store, high on the highest shelf, sat a junior-sized ventriloquist dummy. No child could reach this toy. A parent would need to approach the storekeeper with serious intentions of buying. This was well after the days of vaudeville, after Charlie McCarthy on the radio. But not after Ed Sullivan and Senior Wences, Sherry Lewis, or Kukla Fran and Ollie. When we stepped up on the porch of the old house that was the Battle Creek toy shop, I would look up at the dummy. He was always dressed in a checkered suit. I would think how it would be if I could give it the illusion of life like the puppet masters I'd seen on TV. I can't remember if I made my desire known, but around this time I did receive a puppet as a gift. The puppet was literally a villain a mustache-twirling relic from a silent flick. A dark figure dressed in black from his top hat to his cape and overcoat, where you inserted your hand. His name might have been Oil Can Harry or Snidely Whiplash, but he was the villain archetype that traditionally received boos and hisses from the audience when his face came on screen. He was always up to no good, tying Nell to the railroad tracks or some other deviltry at the sawmill. An odd choice for a child's plaything, don't you think? What made this toy truly magical was that it talked. Sewn into the black body was a large black box with a pull string. The illusion of life. Pull the string and the puppet would give an evil laugh. I had a strange relationship to the puppet. I owned it. I remember chewing on its plastic head, wearing off some of the black paint but it also frightened me. Looking back, I'm as much amused by my fear 
as I am confused by the malevolence packed into this strange toy. I have vivid memories of accidentally stumbling upon the puppet in the yard and being startled, frozen as if it were a snake in the grass. I would pick it up and throw it quickly as hard as I could away from me. I wouldn't even look back. Eventually, I forgot where it had landed and the process would repeat itself. I'm glad I was never given the ventriloquist dummy. I think they're creepy, with a full bottom half with little dead legs dangling. My father taught an art education class where he had his students create a puppet. He helped one clever pupil build a nearly life-size dummy. It had skin made out of chamois cloth and was quite lifelike. My dad was very happy with it. He played with the eye mechanism and had his picture taken with it like an old-time vaudevillian. I think the oil can Harry puppet might have been his idea. This was the magic of a father's love. Retired magician Harry Keller pleads with Houdini not to perform the fatal Chung Ling Su bullet catch at the New York Hippodrome. Now, dear boy, this is advice from the heart. Don't try the damn bullet catching trick, no matter how sure you may feel of its success. There's always the biggest kind of risk that some dog will job you, and we can't afford to lose Houdini. You have enough good stuff to maintain your position at the head of the profession, and you owe it to your friends and your family to cut out all stuff that entails risk to your life. Please, Harry. Listen to your old friend Kella, who loves you as his son, and don't do it. Up next, the juicy truth. Today we'll be drinking an Australian wine from the Barossa Valley. It's called Three Ring Shiraz from 2006. With me is my friend V12. So what kind of cork did this here wine have, Rotwang? Damn you. Well that's interesting because it's the first wine that we've tried that is actually a screw cap. We've read a lot about the screw cap. Ironically, I thought the wine tasted a little bit like a cork when I first opened it. So that's kind of the next question. What did you think about the taste? You thought it tasted like a cork? Just at first, I thought I uh, tasted the suggestion of a cork, which isn't usually a good taste in wine. Did you think this wine was magical? Yeah, I read the little blurb on the bottle, and I'm, I'm not finding it magical, no. I think part of the magic thing comes from the, the three rings, which is part of the winemaker's name, Ring, Ring Land. So three ring circus, magic, it's all part of the theme. Maybe if I drank enough of it, because it does <laughs> definitely has a high alcohol content. I think they're counting on that, yeah. It's a rich, dark, and lavish wine. Well, it's certainly dark. Well, you know what? It, it is powerful. It's strong. Yes. Which would be maybe Lab. rich and dark. 
Rich not and dark, lavish. but not lavish. <laughs> <laughs> and you're thinking lavish? No. <laughs> yeah. A lavish wine is going to just be a big wine, right? Yes. Yeah. Big wine. You, you said something about Shiraz. I've had about, counting this one, three different Shirazes. Shirazai? And uh, they've all been very bold and strong. And uh, I'm not a fan. You don't like Merlots either, right? No. They're woody and earthy, like dirt. Well, I'm going to get to that uh, when we start talking about taste. You were afraid of anything having to do with Australia, weren't you? What, where does that come from? I don't know. <laughs> Are you afraid of Australians? Yes, definitely. <laughs> But you, you said, oh no, it's Australian. I ate all Australian wine. <laughs> no, because Australian wine's all Shiraz. Okay, so you don't like the Shiraz grape necessarily. I can't compare it to any other Australian wine because I haven't had anything but Shiraz. Okay, well, it's their like national grape. So lot, lots of their wines will either be all 100% Shiraz or a mixture of Shiraz. But I don't think you should hold it against the grape. The Barossa Valley is in southern Australia. The largest nearby city is Adelaide. The Barossa Valley is primarily known for its red wine, in particular Shiraz. Very hot weather in February and March can place stress on the vines at the end of the ripening cycle, resulting in concentrated flavors. Let's talk a bit about the label. You read the label and it's a... It's a little cockamamie. Yeah, it took quite a bit of reading, this label. I probably wouldn't have bought the wine after I read the label. It was kind of a nonsensical, omnipalindromithic. They were being a little cute with the label, and they were like trying to uh, use a, a big phony word. And, uh, you know, because wine is maybe a snooty kind of phony person's beverage. But you were saying that uh, once you ran across some of these words and how they were claiming to be, this wine was so complex, you might just say, well, that's not for me, right? Yeah, exactly. It didn't give you, when you're looking at a label for a wine, you want to know, you want to know a few things. You want to know if it's sweet to the taste or basically one of the characteristics of the wine. And this one was kind of making fun of things and you really didn't know when they got to the bottom if they were telling you what this wine tasted like or what it was. Well how about the front of the label? It has a ringmaster on it with three holding three rings above his head. It's very simple on the front with a ticket to the circus and it says it's magic. It's very simple. It's a small and black and white piece of what looks like clip art. It floats in the center of a mostly white label. When you turn the bottle around, you see the ringmaster from the back. What do you think about the nose of the wine? Now, the, the label did say that it was a complex wine. As soon as we uh, poured the wine, I noticed that it did have a very interesting bouquet. There was something extra there, and when the glass was empty, I decided that there was a note of uh, cedar. Sometimes I have difficulty separating smell and taste, so I believe the wood smell gave the wine an equally wood taste. That's how I, I uh, 
think of um, Merlots as, as being very like woody and earthy. I, I'm not a big fan of Merlot. It's too he too heavy, too earthy. It reminded me of Lincoln Logs, sucking on Lincoln Logs. There's some kind of uh, processed, cut out wood that's been dyed and I don't know how they make it. I'll look that up. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe, maybe that's why, why I'm the way I am today, because of too many Lincoln Logs in my diet. <laughs> very good, very good. Leather has a very distinct kind of taste to it. Well, I don't have as much experience sucking leather as I do Lincoln Logs. What's next, B12? the color and clarity of this Shiraz here. After we poured this, it was like black in the glass. We couldn't detect the color until much later that it was more purple. And as I was pouring it out, I thought I saw some uh, sediments, which uh, should have been decanted out, but we didn't do that. So I think maybe this wine is unusual because it doesn't have a lot of clarity. It's dense. We both thought that it was dense. You only saw the purple color after it was uh, pretty much gone. I think that you have to mention the high alcohol content because it does really relate to the taste. That's a 15% alcohol. That's pretty high. That's actually the highest we've drank so far. The highest I've seen in the store is 16. What did you give uh, for the color? I at first just started describing it deep burgundy, but I gave it a 7. Okay, I gave that a 5 because I couldn't see any color. You can see it when you, you know, when you shake your glass a little bit, but I agree with you on the on the density of it. You can't see through it at all. Yeah, and I don't think that's a bad thing. It's just a, a con quality of this wine. Uh, but usually uh, when we rate the wines, those are automatic high numbers. So I gave the clarity a, a three because there was, wasn't a lot of clarity in the glass and I also saw sediments. Then I'm finding out that I did this all backwards because I gave the density a nine, meaning that it was very high in density and you're doing just the opposite. So I'm sorry you didn't understand how this works. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> I gave it a nine. What did you give for the body of the wine, <laughs> Mr. Rotwang? I, I just Rotwang's fine. Uh, the body, I gave a seven. And I gave a five. Okay. We don't have to talk too much about body. Okay, uh, aroma notes. Uh, there were aroma notes, so I gave this a high not point of nine. And I gave it a seven, and if I was trying to pick out just hints of certain aromas, I... I disagreed with the label. I felt that I could smell a little a grape. Um, not that it was the main aroma, but I kind of uh, felt that I could smell a grape or smell a berry, like a raspberry or something. Um, but they were just very underlying. Now our score for this wine's flavor. I enjoyed trying to place a flavor. I have to settle for an undetermined wood flavor. A bit of research has confirmed that this wine was matured in American oak barrels. American oak tends to be more intensely flavored than French oak, with more sweet and vanilla overtones. Winemakers that prefer American oak typically use them for bold, powerful reds or warm climate Chardonnays. I gave it a high eight. What did you give yours? Four you recognized there were flavors there, you just didn't like them. Correct. 
Okay, what did you think about the complexity? I gave it a six. All right, I gave that a nine. Uh, what did you think about the acid balance? I actually gave that a ratio, and I felt that it was heavier acid than um, than not for the balance. So I said a ratio of like six to four. Six being the acid, and if you're going to the basic side, that'd be four. That's very interesting, but you need to give me a number between one and ten. Six. <laughs> Six. 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 Okay, I gave it a ten. That is so high in acid. No. You got to think of it as, is it good, the balance? So if it was very high in acid, and this was on the tart side, so it did have a little acid in there, you have to make a personal choice whether you like that or you didn't and get rate it from 1 to 10. Oh. Well, definitely would not be a 10, but I suppose it can go higher than a 6 in that case. Let's go 8. Okay. I will ask you to please correct your scoring sheet. Thank you. Alrighty, now we're down to the alcohol balance, which is very similar to the acid balance in that we already know it's high in alcohol. The question is, was there more alcohol than flavor in the balance? And I suggest that no, there wasn't. There was a lot of good flavor and a lot of high alcohol, so I gave this a 10. What did you say? I gave it a 9. Okay, now we're down to the very last category, which is price. We are, as usual, we're shooting for a wine that's under $10. This wine is $20. So that's going to bring its score down a little bit. But we also ask at this point, would you buy this wine again? And I say I might. I'm going to say a score of 7. I was supposed to score the price? Yes. So if I'm not happy with this wine and I wouldn't buy it again, that would be a low number. You could say that, yes. Okay, four. All right. Well, our final scores were very close. B12 gave the wine a 65 and I gave it a 67. So we'll average those and uh, Three Ring Shiraz receives a 66. Thank you, B12, for helping judge Three Ring Shiraz. Let's do it again soon. Good night, Rotwang. Thanks for inviting me on your show. This is a holiday question about um, painting your windows with artificial snow. Do you remember that? Spraying. Spraying it, yeah. Yeah, I imagine I did that. Do you think that was lead-based? <laughs> <laughs> snow. I haven't had any repercussions <laughs> from the spray. It smelled funny. Like, yeah. could be toxic. Yeah. <laughs> Do you remember it? It's like little pebbly yeah, balls like, like snow. And big. we had stencils that you packed away for year to year. Oh, yeah, yeah. How too? cool was that stuff? With the stencils and stuff? Yeah. Yeah, that, that was, that was yeah. cool. Some I kept of the bitch for... getting it out the window. And they had stuff you could spray on the tree, too, to make it look like artificial snow. It's probably the same stuff. You know what, they probably took that in formula and made the, the hair paint for people who are going bald. Because it clumps up. And... They probably banned it. <laughs> <laughs> oh.
I'm sitting here with Orson Welles, and uh, in this spot, we were going to do a dead air segment. He's been patiently waiting his turn, working behind the scenes, uh, lining up ghostly guests. Isn't that right? Yes. It's simply part of the collaboration. That's right, but Orson, I have some bad news. You promised me. I know, but we're tired of interviewing the dead. Every time I do one of those things, I chip off something more from me. I know. No one knows more than I. You put your whole heart into those shows. We'll do more. We will. And uh, your story will be the very next told. But until then, we're doing a new thing. It's kind of a game. What's your salary? No, it's not what's your salary. We're calling it chapter and verse. Here's how it's played. We describe a single chapter from a DVD or Blu-ray disc. We offer hints, but never reveal the film's title. Then in the next show, we let the listeners know what the movie was. It's like Massacre Theater without the bad acting and dull repartee. Do you want to try one? Yes. Okay, here we go. Here are some hints. This movie was filmed in black and white. It has a very appropriate opening title sequence designed by Saul Bass. The film was shot on location in London. The locations were real. In fact, you can occasionally see people in the background looking into the cameras. This is chapter seven. It's called Extremely Seductive. It's seven minutes, 45 seconds long. Anne is home alone in the kitchen of her new apartment. She opens the ice box and tries to have a bite to eat, but she can't get it down. She spits it back out. Anne hears the sound of someone at the door. She's excited. She thinks it might be someone dear to her returning home, but then she's frightened when she finds it's her creepy new landlord, Wilson. She asks why he's letting himself in. He's curious to know why the police were at his house earlier in the day. He stands close and takes every opportunity to touch her. He keeps moving in and out of shadow. She explains about the police in the briefest possible manner. Then they play leapfrog deeper into the apartment. First, he retreats into the room and perches on the arm of a chair. She follows him across the room and stands looking down at him and questions him. Wilson makes fun of her and he appears drunk. She asks him how he can laugh at her distress. He puts a hand on her shoulder and she immediately removes it. They continue to move deeper into the apartment. Anne crosses the room and sits under a lamp. Wilson follows and takes a position behind her chair, behind her back. She's distracted, obviously not listening to his opinions about modern communication and devices such as the telephone and television. He talks about himself and he keeps inching closer and closer, moving in and out of her shadow. She doesn't turn around, but edges away from him slowly. He tells her that he works at the BBC and people have told him his voice is extremely seductive. Anne asks Wilson to please go away. He strokes his index finger down her arm and he says, Perhaps you should sample the wine before sending the bottle back to the cellar. The scene shifts to a room we've seen before. It's a classroom for young children. To the extreme left of the frame sits a superintendent of police. 
His name is Newhouse. He looks like he's sitting on a large hobby horse. His hand is casually draped on the horse's head. In the center of the frame is the young lead. His name is Stephen, and he sits in the metal frame of a child's swing. There's a lot of swinging in this film. Stephen rocks gently while he tells the detective about his childhood. The camera angle changes to Newhouse. He looks down at Stephen with a serious expression. This new angle shows another hobby horse behind the first. It almost makes the detective look like he's astride a two-headed horse, the heads going in opposite directions. He asks Stephen to explain in what way Stephen's mother was peculiar. There's a close-up of Stephen smiling. A shadow of the rope swing crosses his face. He explains that his mother became very religious and often spoke to her dead husband's spirit. This is important because there's much discussion in this film about imaginary people. Newhouse moves to the opposite side of the room closer to Stephen. He asks whether his sister Anne was a lonely child. This angers Stephen. He gets out of the swing and, and asks Newhouse where this line of questioning is getting them. Newhouse says, Children, lonely children, often make up imaginary playmates. The camera changes and shows Stephen walking over to Newhouse. They are now standing center frame. In the center of the wall behind them is a cuckoo clock. The pendulum of the clock continues the swinging motion Stephen had been making. The detective asks bluntly if Stephen's sister Anne ever had an imaginary playmate. Stephen says not that he was aware of. Newhouse gestures Stephen to follow him. They leave the first day room and travel to the upper floors of the school. The scene changes to the police station. A detective working for Newhouse sits and apologizes to a woman for making her miss her plane. She is the recently fired cook at the school. She will need to answer some routine questions. The scene changes again to a room we've been in before. It's the upper rooms of the school. This is the apartment of Ms. Ford, one of the school's founders. The room is very dark. The camera is looking over the shoulder of Superintendent Newhouse. He's only a silhouette standing in the doorway. He watches as Ms. Ford apologizes to Stephen for telling Newhouse Stephen's secrets. Newhouse pushes into the room and asks Ms. Ford what Stephen had told her. She says Stephen told her that his sister had an imaginary friend when she was five, and that later Anne pretended this imaginary friend was her daughter. The camera cuts to Stephen. His eyes shift down. He says Miss Ford misunderstood what he was saying, that he wasn't talking about his sister. Ms. Ford calls Stephen a most frightful liar. The detective asks Stephen why he was even speaking with Miss Ford. Stephen says he was fishing for answers. Ms. Ford says she couldn't know any more than what happened inside her apartment. Newhouse asks Stephen if he wouldn't do anything for his sister, lie or cover up for her. Stephen opens his coat in an aggressive manner. He puts his fists on his hips and tells the detective, I've had it, Newhouse. Just give me half an hour to square things at the office, then I'll get busy. And you'll be lucky if they still let you hand out parking tickets. The scene reverts back to uh, the original setting, Anne in her apartment with the creepy landlord Wilson. He offers her a whiskey. She turns away. He goes on being a lecherous drunk. 
He touches her cheek and she cringes and moves away. He's insulted and tells her that some have been honored by his touch. He turns at the sound of the police arriving. We see them from Anne's point of view from behind Wilson as they pass outside the apartment windows. This ends chapter seven. Do you know this movie? Orson, what did you think? I thought it would have been much more interesting, including the cuckoo clock and all that kind of stuff. You think that was the director having a little fun? But directors get up to such things, you know. Listen to the next Rotcast series beginning with show 11 and learn the film title in the next edition of the chapter and verse quiz. The more, the more human you make the monster, the more interesting the, the story must be, it seems to me. The show's over, Orson. The Rotcast musical bed you're hearing is called Haunted. It's used with the permission of the composer Kim Schutterley. If you have a good idea for a Rotcast theme or a wine suggestion for our review, email your idea to mail at rotcast.com or call the Rotline. I'm a long-time listener, but a first-time juggler. I really enjoy your podcast. Uh, me and my friend, we're going to make one just like yours, only funny and more interesting. Anyways, uh, we'd like to know what software you use. Uh, PC or Mac. Huh? PC yeah, or Mac. Yeah, like when you interview the dead people? Uh, I know, I know. And is it PC or Mac? Thanks. Cut back on the caffeine. If you uh, listen closely to Rotcast, you probably know that the interviews are more or less seances. Our engineer, Orson Welles, was condemned to radio hell because he was so difficult to work with while doing voiceovers for radio commercials. He uses a Ouija board and an electric gizmo that looks like it belongs in a David Cronenberg film. No, I'm just kidding. We uh, only use Mac software. That part of the show is done with two plugins for Ubercaster, Dialog Pro 10 and iMimicker. That's Mimicker with a K. Thanks for your call. Hi, Rotwang. This is Alex Grant from the greatest dentist of old-time radio podcasts. Out here in Idaho, we listen to Rotcast with great interest. For example, in your episode with the theme of mothers, I noticed that three of the sound clips all came from Alfred Hitchcock movies. The teaser was uh, Psycho, the singing mother, was from The Man Who Knew Too Much, and The Little Boy in the Woods was from The Trouble with Harry. This got me thinking that Hitch would be an excellent interview for your Dead Air feature. The Rotline phone number will be posted at the website or Skype us at CallRotCast. Visit www.rotcast.com to learn more about the wines and link to more content. Listen next time when you will hear. And all the, the, the bishop and the knights, uh, it's so archaic, and yet it's where England was. You know, the swinging 60s and the great music revolution and all the rest of it, you know. <laughs>